This week on Superheroes of Science, we are excited to welcome Tony Rice. Tony is a NASA ambassador for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So welcome, Tony. Thank you for having me. So uh, uh, a NASA ambassador, let, let's, let's, let's start there. I always kind of, I want to know the career. I want to know what people, what, what, what those things mean when they say, when we, they introduce the career. So let's start there with well, what's a NASA ambassador do? So there's a couple hundred of us around the country. It's a volunteer position. And we're just folks that are really excited about science, about space exploration in particular. And we get to go into classrooms and we get to uh, partner with our, our local museums. And uh, some of us even get the opportunity to go on TV and, and, and have fun times with uh, you guys from time to time. It's just all about bringing science to the public and, and letting people know what's going on with NASA and some of the cool things we're doing there. I'm a data scientist by, by training. Um, my degree is in computer science. And uh, when I get the chance to talk to particularly undergrads, particularly to, to college students or high school students that are thinking about that first career, I, I like to share my, uh, uh, my history there. And it, it comes from the fact that I was kind of scientifically ADD. I love all different kinds of sciences. Uh, at one point, I thought about being a meteorologist, um, really enjoy physics, really enjoy geology, and I just couldn't pick one. So I picked computer science so I could actually participate in lots of different kinds of sciences. Uh, and data science lets me do a lot of those sorts of things. And maybe we'll get into a little bit of uh, uh, how computer science gets into uh, astronomy some. I might have a few things I can share there. Oh, yeah, that'd be a good that thing to, to yeah. discuss. I, I like that. Let's pull back to that if we have time. Absolutely. Because the big thing we wanted to talk to you about this week, uh, this time, I'll say this time because we might have to come back. Uh, <laughs> we might have to have you more than once there since we had, yeah, you're, you're kind of involved in a lot of different things. But uh, the big thing, we want to talk about the moon because uh, I've been hearing things. Well, actually, as I drove in, being um, – as I drove in this morning, there was a beautiful full moon that I got to watch my entire way to work. And uh, we, when it's about an hour dry, you you know, you'd see it. <laughs> and so the, uh, we'd like to talk about the different, of course, we hear about phases of the moon. And mm -hmm. so I see on the calendar even, it, it, it says when the full moon's going to be in the different moons. So maybe let's start with, can you explain what the phases of the moon what actually is going on there? Kind of the, the science behind that a little bit, background? Right, so this morning you were seeing the, the full moon. Um, some would call it the full harvest moon. We have some nicknames for, uh, for some of the, well actually all of the full moons have names and, and they've kind of served as calendars for us in the past. Uh, and Native American peoples have their, their names for them and they've signified different things that they needed to do with hunting and the harvest and it, it, it told the, the story of passage of time over uh, the year. And we see about 12 full moons per year. Uh, but that, that passing of the phases of the moon is called lunation. And it is uh, when we go from a new moon, when there's no light shining on the moon, uh, back to that full moon when there's 100% light shining on the moon and all the phases in between. Uh, so the, the way to, to think of it is uh, just our position, where the moon is around the Earth, and the, the moon orbits the Earth, as, as you probably know, and that's why it looks so different to us each evening. Uh, the period of time that it takes for the, the moon to go around the Earth 
is actually different than the period of time that it takes for the moon to go from a new moon to a quarter moon and then on back to um, a full moon. Um, and they've got some, some, some different names. So the, the period of lunation, that time between new moon to new moon, is called a synodic month, uh, or it's also called the lunar month. And that's about 29 and a half days. So think about 29 and a half days. What does that equate to on our calendar? It's about a month, but you know, not quite. And that's why that, that time when the new moon occurs, or full moon or whatever, you know, slides around uh, throughout the month. It's because they don't quite line up uh, perfectly. And that's really the story of our calendars, is things don't really line up all that well. And it's because of how this all works. Uh, there's another period, though, called a sidereal month. And the, the side part of that comes from Latin for stars. And that's how we measure where the moon in the sky is relative to the background of the stars. The stars are so far away, they're moving, but they're so far away, it really doesn't appear to us. So they, they look pretty much stable. So when we measure where the moon is against that background of stars, uh, that time period is actually about 27 and a third days. They're about two days off there. And that, that's part of that, you know, the cycle's not syncing up very well. Um, and the reason for that is everything out there is moving. The moon is moving around the earth. The earth is rotating. The moon is actually rotating too. It doesn't appear to us. We could talk about that a little bit, why the moon always looks the same to us. But everything out there is moving. The earth is continuing to move around the sun. So that's where that, you know, two and you know a quarter someday difference between the synodic month and the sidereal month comes from. There's a little bit of catch up that has to be played there because the earth is continuing to move. That's what's fascinating about all this is all this is related to the calendars. We build our calendars off of the things that we see in the sky, where the sun is relative, uh, uh, how sun the, the high the sun will get in the sky, where the moon is, the moon's phases. And it all kind of lines up, but not really. Huh. Now, it, so our month isn't just from like full moon to full moon? It, it isn't. Um, our calendars, the civil calendars that we use, that we have pinned to our walls and show up on our computers and things like that. Um, but historically, the months have been based off of, off of the moon. And some calendars, the Islamic calendar, uh, the Chinese calendar, and, and many calendars that have been used through history are still based on that. Uh, I imagine many of our, our audience that, you know, when they go to church, they might hear uh, some different month names mentioned. Um, that, you know, those come from lunar-based calendars. Oh. I the word month actually comes from the word moon. Oh. Huh. Did not know that either. And so we have these different phases of the moon, but then you mentioned different nicknames because you said, well, what I saw today, since it's October, early October, you said it's, it was a, a harvest full moon. That's the nickname for it. Now, that's right. I've heard of harvest moon before, and it seems like they're always talking about that's, that's what I see in the fall. Mm -hmm. But it, what's different about these? That, is it just because it's in the fall? What is, what's a harvest moon? The names come from the period uh, during the year that, that they're occurring. There's a flower moon um, when we, it's, that happens in the spring when we typically start seeing uh, flowers starting to emerge. There's a sturgeon moon that uh, one of the Native American tribes, I forget the, the one off the top of my head, but they use that as a sign that it was a really good time to go fishing. Uh, 
so these uh, serve as, as cues as to what's going to be happening throughout the year. Ah, but now this month we're, we're going to have a blue moon, right? We're going to have a blue moon and there's kind of one main definition of a, a blue moon, but there's a, another one too. The moon can actually look the blue color. Uh, normally when we talk about a blue moon, we're, we're talking about something that's quote unquote rare. And it's really not all that rare. And I can show you the math behind it if you, if you like. Uh, but it, the moon can actually have a blue color uh, depending on what's happening in the atmosphere. So for the same reason our sky looks blue, the moon itself can look blue. And it's all based on particles in the atmosphere and, and what's happening to that light and how it's being scattered. A true blue moon where it actually looks blue is, is really rare. So that, that's a good name for it. But a blue moon normally means a second full moon during a calendar month. So this is all about where things fall in the calendar. It is kind of rare. As I, I look back across uh, my list of, of blue moons, and I'm just talking regular blue moons, not Halloween blue moons. And I, I think that's probably going to be your next question, which is good. It's a, a good time for that. Um, we are going to have a blue moon this month, October 2020. Uh, the moon will turn blue. It will uh, uh, turn full, not the color blue. It's just, you know, the, the, the calendar blue uh, at uh, 1049 um, UTC. We, we, astronomers, we all live in different places on the, on the planet. So we all do our work in uh, university coordinated time, Greenwich Mean Time at, at again, 1049 in the morning. And that happens on October 31st. The reason it's a quote unquote blue moon is because of what you saw when you drive into work this morning. On October 1st, you saw a full moon. So if we have two in one calendar month, that's called a blue moon. So I'm going to ask you both a question. When would that first blue or that first full moon have to occur in order for us to have a blue moon? What day of the month? 29, uh, it has to be 29 and a half days before the first, uh, before the end of the month then, right? Right. So what month would and a half ever days? have a blue moon in? Well, February. February, exactly. So it's You're that, slow, uh, yep, 29 and a half day lunation period that controls it all. So if we're, you know, normally going to have a, a blue moon on the 30th or the 31st, mm -hmm. when can you put your money down on when that first full moon's going to be? What day of the month? What two days would you probably put your money on? First or second. First or second, yeah. And, and the, the math is what controls things here. Uh, yeah. Math is, uh, math's pretty reliable here. <laughs> Could you, okay, you mentioned UTC, and, mm -hmm. and my daughter had asked about this the other day, and I think I did a pretty bad job explaining universal <laughs> time. So could you explain, because I think I love the concept of UTC and how it's at any one point in time, we're all on different time zones, but we're all experiencing the same time. So I don't know what you could say about UTC. Yeah, so the time zones come from when, when the sun's rising and time zones actually, the history of them are pretty fascinating. I think the history of calendars are really fascinating. There's lots of things that you can learn, uh, not just about the math behind it and the astronomy that drives it all, but culturally, uh, we learn a lot of things about that too. But when you look back to the history of time zones, things were kind of chaotic uh, in the you know, early times, even in the United States, we were all kind of living on, on different times uh, and it all comes down to the sun's going to come up at, at a different time, depending on where you are, east versus west. 
Uh, and uh, as train travel uh, became more um, available and people were moving around the country, uh, towns had their own, own times that they were maintaining. And that train station, there was a clock in that train station that you know, kind of controlled that town's time. Uh, but as the, the world kind of shrunk and our country kind of shrunk, uh, it became necessary to, to establish some, some time zones. And uh, we, it, I mentioned before, astronomers, uh, they're all over the world and you know, business people are all over the world as well. We need a way to have some common ground that we can talk about things in. So whenever I do math that, that's associated with astronomy, whenever I'm trying to figure out where something's going to be at the sky at a particular time, I always do it in UTC. I always do it in that one main time zone. And if I need to communicate it to somebody uh, in, in Indiana, I'm gonna use your time zone. If I'm talking to somebody back in California, I'm gonna use the Pacific time zone. Uh, you, you do that, that conversion. So you always work in UTC and then you convert to the local time zone. So it makes a little more sense locally. So what is it about UTC though that, that you use as that standard like can you explain more about why is it we had to pick one <laughs> okay we had to pick one and i i think that the history really goes back to uh the the british empire and the the fact that uh um there was so much commerce coming out of that area it it, it won out uh yeah that's back when uh, the sun never set on the british empire Sun never set on the british empire that's right <laughs> So, yeah, that's why Greenwich, they, they pick that. That's, that's when the world starts and stops, mm -hmm. or at least the day does. <laughs> and I, we I've use fallen, that in uh, science, too. Right, yeah. yes. right. Uh, I've fallen prey to this myself. Um, several years ago, I, I went to uh, Japan to speak at a conference in, in Tokyo. Uh, just a fascinating place. So I went out there, met with some colleagues of the Japanese Space Agency. And when I was planning my trip, I wanted to add a, a day or two on the beginning or end to do a little bit of sightseeing. And as I landed there, I realized I love calendars and I love doing the math and everything. And, and even I had messed up and forgot to take into account that I was crossing the international date line. And I had one less day there than I had anticipated. So oh, it, it's no. easy to do. Oh. Yes, it is easy. <laughs> Very easy for those things. But in science, we use uh, universal time, and uh, a lot of a lot of a lot more than we w might generally think in your day to day life. I know right. Sarah and I are both uh, into amateur radio, mm -hmm. and with amateur radio, it's also UTC. Yeah. My hand clock on the wall is actually UTC time. My clock on my computer is UTC as well. Uh, and, and that's in large part, too, because when I'm looking at data that's coming from other planets, coming from our Mars rotors or whatever, we convert it back to UTC. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm still just a little bummed that the blue moon's not going to be blue. Sorry, not this time. Not now, this time. I, I remember, I, don't, I think it was last year, the year before, um, when I was driving to work and the moon looked just red, dark red. And then mm -hmm. I heard later on the radio, everybody's talking about, oh, yeah, the blood moon, the blood moon. Is, is that a particular f phenomenon that, with the, to get the moon to look red? Is there something happening with that? Do you know? So the, the blood moon is also a calendrical thing. Uh, and that, that's a good, uh, um, uh, a good vocabulary word for us is, is calendrical. It describes a calendar. So you can talk about calendrical calculations, and that's the, the map around calendars. 
Uh, but there's, again, two factors when it comes to the name blood, just like there's two factors with the name blue. The moon can look red and often looks pretty orange. Uh, matter of fact, last night when I saw it rising, I was out last night uh, looking towards my northeast trying to see a launch uh, from Virginia. There was a launch of an Antares rocket that was taking about 8,000 pounds of cargo up to the International Space Station. It ended up being scrubbed at the last minute. So I'll be back out there tonight looking for it. Um, we can see it all up and down the East Coast. But I was, as I was watching the moon rise there, it looked pretty orange to me as well. And the reason for that is actually the same reason that sunsets look kind of orange. So think about it this way. Um, if you go outside around noontime and you look at the sun, it's pretty bright, isn't it? You don't want to look directly at it. And it's been really clear um, over the last week or so across the East Coast and across most of the, uh, the country, except for the smoke from the wildfires that we're seeing you know, all the way on the East Coast from all the way out in California, which is pretty amazing. That shows you how dynamic our atmosphere is. Uh, but it's been really, really clear. You go outside and the, the sun's really, really bright. But you look at a sunset and you can look at the sun without being painful. Uh, without being particularly dangerous. And it also no longer looks bright white uh, as it does when it's right directly overhead. When you look at the sun during a sunset, it has kind of a reddish orange color. Now think about those times when it's looked even more red, even more orange. That's because of all of the moisture in the atmosphere. Uh, that typically happens after a, uh, there's been a particularly rainy day or, or um, it's been really, really humid. The reason you're able to see the sun uh, without it you know, hurting you when, when you're, you're looking during a sunset is the same reason why it looks so red and so orange. It's the amount of atmosphere that you're looking through. Directly overhead, you're, you're looking through one layer of atmosphere. But think about the sphere that the Earth is and think about that blanket of air that's around the Earth, that blanket of atmosphere. When you're standing on it and you're looking directly across at the horizon, how many atmospheres do you think you're looking at? How, so we'll measure, this is one atmosphere directly overhead called zenith. Mm -hmm. Let's twist that on its side and look out over the horizon. How many do you think you're looking at? Oh, I'm guessing it's twice as long maybe. I'm thinking of my triangle mask. I mean, twice as long. Triangle. Think of that. I'll think that is and going this way. What's your idea? Um, I'll say, I'll say three atmospheres. I don't More know. than 30. How many? It's more than 30. More than 30? Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That's why this super bright thing that's going to fry your eyeballs if you stare at it is more or less okay to look at. You don't want to look at it too long, but uh, on, a, uh, on, a, on a nice day after the storms have moved through and you got that beautiful orange sunset, that's why. Same is true with that moon. As it's rising, you're looking through all of that atmosphere and the, the light works the same way. Physics works the same way, night or day. Physics the work works the same way on the moon, on Earth, on Mars, wherever. That same physics is causing that light to scatter in a way that the blue light gets scattered away, leaving that red and orange light to hit your eyes. Those photons that are coming, bouncing off of the moon are hitting your eyes. Those are your photons alone. You're the only one that gets to see those. That's one way of thinking of it. Wow. I like that. Now, another moon that we talked about, too, that, um, that we were talking about a while ago, you said something about a, a, su a, super, a super moon? Ooh, super moons. Yeah, everybody loves the super moon. Well, so, my meteorologist super moon? friends, 
they, they love bringing this up. People are really, really interested in the supermoon. So let me see if I can find a, uh, a comparison image while we talk. Um, a supermoon is uh, one that occurs near perigee. So the orbit of the moon, put it this way, it, it, it's kind of a circle as it moves around the earth, but it's not a perfect circle. It's more oval. Uh, so there's times when the moon is a little bit closer. There's time when the moon is a little bit further. Perigee is that time when it's a little bit closer. Apogee is the time when it's a little bit farther away. The way to remember the two of them is apogee away. They both start with A. Uh, when it's far away, that's called a mini moon. Nobody seems to care about that one. When it's close, it's called a supermoon, but only when it occurs during a full moon. So it's not a scientific term, it's kind of a fun thing. The moon will look a little bit brighter and a little bit bigger when that full moon occurs near, um, uh, near perigee. And that's where the term supermoon comes from. It's not a scientific term. The person who came up with the name supermoon wasn't an astronomer, they were an astrologer. They're pretty different. Yes, very different. <laughs> well, that's cool. Now, is that is there a set cycle for that to occur? Then seems like everything has a cycle. Everything does have a cycle. Um, since that lunation, which is that uh, uh, that that's uh, a synodic month, is twenty nine and a half days. And the period of time that it takes the moon to actually go around the Earth, the sidereal month, is 27 and a third days. Again, these things don't line up very well. Uh, and to make things even more difficult, let me bring up my list of supermoons here. I actually wrote some code to figure this out. I'm going to my GitHub repository. I wrote this all in Python. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, if anybody is thinking about being a scientist, uh, yes, you've got to go and learn all the science. And you've got to learn all your math and such, but you need to learn how to code. And we can answer a lot of these kind of questions just by uh, writing some, some software that, that tells us. So the four supermoons that are occurring dur during 2020, uh, we had one that happened back in um, February. There was another one in March. There's one in April. And then there was one in May. And that's actually kind of rare that they that many of them happen together. They tend to happen in clumps of three, and then we don't see any for quite a while. Hmm. Uh, but to make things even more complicated, uh, I can't give you an official definition of what a supermoon is. I, I can kind of give you some, some ideas. Again, it's not scientific. Scientific things have very specific definitions. Uh, the person that created this, this astrologer, he has one set of rules. Um, there is a, a NASA astrophysicist uh, called Fred Espernak, uh, really, really well-respected uh, uh, astrophysicist. We, we know him as Mr. Eclipse. If you go on the NASA website and you look up anything about eclipses, he's done all the math to figure out when lunar and solar eclipses occur. Uh, so he has his own rules. I kind of use his because it has some good numbers with it that I can you know, actually write some code and figure out when these things are going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a couple of websites that have their own definitions. Everybody's coming to come up with their own rules. In the end, it really doesn't matter because it, it's when the moon's going to be a little bit bigger, a little bit brighter. And it's a good time to go out and take a look. Okay. Pretty cool. Well, 
so I have to ask you, we talked a little bit about, or you had mentioned about how computer science um, can be related to, was it space and other mm -hmm. sciences? Absolutely. Uh, what, what can you tell us about that? So I could tell you, but why don't I show you? Let me, okay. uh, let me share some code here. Okay, so this is my, my GitHub repository, and I'll make it a little bit bigger so it's easier to see. And this, this is the output of that code. So what I did is I had a question, and my question was, how rare is a Halloween blue moon? And the first answer to that question, you know, we kind of talked about before, uh, any full moon on Halloween is going to be a blue moon because of those rules we mentioned before. If the tur moon turns full on the 31st, well, it probably, not probably, it definitely did turn full on the first or the second, probably the first of October. So we answered that question, but the question of how often does this happen? How often do those, those cycles line up properly so that it actually does happen? So here's the answer, and I, I, I calculated things between uh, 1900 and 2100 uh, using uh, a set of, uh, of data that JPL provides uh, we can even go back to BC and uh, and figure out where the planets and the moons and everything were um, in space uh, based on uh, on the some pretty complex max formulas they put together. But you know, here's the answer. So here's 2020. Uh, we haven't had a Halloween full moon since 1955. We haven't oh had my a goodness. Halloween blue moon, and it'll happen again in 2039. And if you look at the pattern that happens here, and this is the interesting thing about some of these astronomy patterns is you'll see things happen on a, what appears to be a regular schedule about every 19 years for a, a couple of cycles. And then it won't happen. That 19 years stretches out to, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And again, it's because of these cycles that are, are matching up time and time again. So how rare is a blue moon? Well, you pull the, uh, the October part out and you can see it's, about every three years, uh, oh, starting wow. back in 1901. Uh, but you know that would be a blue moon occurring in any any month. So when you hear the phrase, "This hasn't happened in a blue moon," okay, I suppose it depends on your perspective. Every three years is not all that uh, all that rare. So I promised to show some code. So here's that code. Oh wow! And here, we, we talked about time zones. Here's me working in UTC and then converting it to Eastern time zone. Okay. Uh, all the times that I showed you earlier were Eastern. Now, here's that UTC happening there. Uh, here is a way to um, look through all of the, um, the times when the moon is at perigee and see if it matches up with the full moon. So anybody is welcome to go look at this. You can probably see it on your screen. I suppose we can include it in the, in the comments on this, but github.com slash rtphokey. And I've got lots of different code that you're free to look at and play with. And uh, uh, it, it does answers lots of different questions. It's, it's fun to answer questions this way. See, I, I love the fact that you're including code in what you're doing. Most of the scientists that we talk to, when we ask them, you know, what does a high school student need to study for whatever your content area is, regardless of where they're from, most of the time they're telling us they need to learn some coding. You do. And it, it's, I, I know it's like my daughter, you know, she, they don't have a class at the school that she can do 
that uh, doesn't conflict with the other classes she takes. And uh, they're like, well, no, well, then that she goes online and uh, she learns it. You know, go to Khan Academy, go to code.org mm -hmm. and uh, start. You can pick it up. There's enough information out there. You can learn it by yourself. You can. And the, I think the best way to learn how to code or to learn anything is to find something that's interesting. You find a question that you want to answer. Here's the question I want to answer was, how rare is a blue moon? And how did you uh, and, do that through code? So uh, code is especially something like Python. Python's a great language to get started with because there's so much out there that can help you not just learn how to the basics of, of coding in Python, but so many packages and modules that other people have put together that solve some of the hard problems for you. So I wanted to highlight that here at the top is all the things that I'm pulling in that other people have done for me. Uh, and the, maybe the most important one here is a package called Skyfield. Skyfield takes those uh, JPL ephemeris, those super complicated uh, uh, algorithms that figure out where the planets are and makes it into a, a, a module that I can use really, really easily to say at this time, tell me where, where the moon is relative to earth. So it's just like you, you may hear scientists say, they don't do anything by themselves. It's all, uh, it's all collaboration. It's all building on top of what other people have done. The same is true of computer science. That's what's going on here. Here I'm importing time zones that figure out uh, all the, the math behind changing from UTC to, um, uh, to my local time zone here in Eastern. Here's NumPy. NumPy has a ton of uh, numerical um, analysis and, and, and just some basic math that handles those sorts of things. Wow. How neat. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I would have never thought of, I mean, writing a code, a, a code, an algorithm or whatever. I'm not sure if those are the same necessarily. Once you put together calculations, is that what we call an algorithm then? Sure. Okay. I, I just never would have thought of jumping on and being able to figure it out by simply writing some code to tell it, hey, look at this, look at this, then tell me. Yeah, let me share one other uh, bit of code with you that, that might uh, spark some, some creativity here. Awesome. Uh, That's so helpful too, just to show us how you can pull in the work that other people have contributed. I, that was kind of the first time I've seen that. That was really Nobody neat. does anything by themselves. And if, uh, if you come to a problem and you feel like this, I don't think that what the question I'm asking here is a unique one. Somebody else must have run into this. You really need to go and look if, if somebody else solved the problem already. You can probably make it better, the solution that fits your question a little bit better, but um, we, we don't do anything alone. So here's another fun um, uh, code solution uh, to a problem. So I, I was reading the book, The Martian, and, and watching the movie. Just, I, I love the movie. I think it's a, a really good movie. It's one of the few science fiction movies that gets most of the science right. So many science fiction movies are a lot more fiction than they are science. Um, most of what's in The Martian, other than that windstorm at the beginning, that, that really can't happen on Mars. And Maybe we can come back and talk Mars weather, weather at a later date, and we'll explain more why that was impossible. Cool. But my question was, okay, when did the rocket that took Matt Damon and the rest of the crew to Mars, when did it launch? They don't actually say in the book, but there's some clues there. If you know about the Mars orbit and you know about our calendars a little, little bit, and the big clue there was that 
the crew was supposed to be on Mars during Thanksgiving, during American Thanksgiving time, used those couple of uh, clues, wrote some code using some of those same packages and determined that um, the, uh, the, the date of the launch, um, when it would be. And uh, you should always include your sources and any references that you use. You know, if you're building on other people's work, you should always in include that in there as well. That's what I'm doing here. So you can go and dig through this code too, if you like to, to see how I solved that problem. That's cool. That's awesome. <laughs> Be able to calculate the movie date. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. I love that. I, it, I, I, you took us in a direction I didn't expect to go. It, it, pulling in the coding. So many times people tell us how important that is, but that's the first time somebody's like, here, let me show you what I threw up, on, yeah. threw up there on GitHub. And that's uh, And that's if I've awesome. got errors, somebody will tell me. And that's great. Uh, you can't be afraid to share what you're working on, uh, especially if you're just beginning. It's the best way to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's just important to keep reminding ourselves. Like you're saying, I love your messages that, no one does anything alone and you can't be scared to expose, you know, any of the problems with that. It's, it's very solid advice. Yeah, and that's the way scientists think. And uh, I think I, I really wish a lot more of us would think that way if, whether they're scientists or not. Well, a scientist and even uh, all the employers, when they're coming here to Purdue and they're like, I want people who can work as a team and right. collaborate uh, and think outside the box. The content is somewhat important, but nowhere near as important as being able to work as a group with other people and be able to think outside the box. Problem solving and teamwork is the two most important um, attributes that most of our people coming in trying to hire students, are, that's what they're looking for. And I was just speaking to a, a meteorology class um, at Virginia Tech earlier this week, talking about some of these things that we're talking about now. And the questions that they were having since they're undergrads and they're thinking about that first job was, what do I need to do to set myself apart? Lots of people get that engineering degree, that computer science degree, in their case, a meteorology degree. There's lots of people coming out with the same set of qualifications, that same piece of paper that says they are a scientist, whatever scientist they may be. How do you set yourself apart? And the answer is you've got to be able to answer the question that you just mentioned there. How do I know that you can work in a team? So internships, volunteer, uh, whether it seems like it's directly related to your major or what you want to do for a living, uh, that's really, really important. You've got to be able to do those things and demonstrate that you can solve problems with other people. Uh, one person can't solve all these problems, but together we're going to come a whole lot closer to that right solution. Uh, solid advice right there. I like that. I want my grad students to listen to this. Um, <laughs> what you're saying. These are things I've been trying to tell them and stuff. It's I want them to hear it from someone else too. This is awesome. Well, sir, we appreciate your time. This is this has been fun. It's been fun talking about the moon and the different types of moons that we have. And then going into the coding, that was unexpected. And I really appreciated that. That falls, it's, it's like the universe is falling together for us because that falls right in with other programs that, that we're, we've been rolling out and yes. through the outreach here. And so uh, I didn't, don't think you know about all of the programs we're doing, but all of a sudden you linked them all together. Yeah. <laughs> it, it all works the thing. And like I said at the beginning, the computer science sits in the middle of it and gets to touch on all of these things. So I don't want to necessarily sell anybody on uh, studying computer science uh, as, a, as a chosen major. But um, you, you got to learn to code. 
regardless of what kind of scientist or engineer you're going to want to be. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. And, Thanks for having uh, me.